After over a year, actually uh, 13 months to be precise, we have come to the final section in our study of 1 Corinthians. We have seen all throughout our study of 1 Corinthians that Paul was basically dealing with uh, a number of very important moral and communal issues. And also he was dealing with a particular doctrinal issue and that had to do with the resurrection of the dead uh, that he dealt with in chapter 15. Now in chapter 16, he brings everything to a closure. And here, he talks about something very personal. And also he has some business matters that he wants to address. He's just bringing all these loose pieces together. And he wants to end this letter with a sort of climax. And I've titled the message for today, Priority Management, because as I see the content of his closure, I see that what he's basically talking about is something very practical for our life. And he talks about issues like finances. He talks about time and opportunity. He talks about work relationship. And then ultimately he talks about Love relationship. It's all about loving one another. It's the preciousness of people around us. That's what the church is about. So I will be addressing some of these issues. And I must say that at the first reading of this section, you wonder whether you can come up with anything quite inspirational. It's not my favorite section of uh, any kind of epistle or any portion of the Bible. But I felt that uh, this would be a challenge for any preacher to take a text like this that's given and really seek to see if there's something of an inspirational message here. And I think there is an inspirational message here, and I think there's a tremendous challenge for all of us. So let's begin with uh, chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. And we'll see the first area that Paul deals with, and that's the area of finance, primarily through his special talk about special collection. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the man who you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. He's talking about receiving this collection for the Lord's people. And he identifies this Lord's people as the church in Jerusalem. And the term here for collection is the Greek word logia which literally means extra collection. He's not talking about tithes and general offerings, general offerings of thanksgiving. He's talking about something that is above their regular giving. In other words, this extra giving has to be done on a voluntary basis. It cannot be a compulsory thing. And what is this offering for? Why is it taking up this offering? Because he had this burden. He had this burden even in the book of Acts. And he actually made a commitment to 
gather as much offerings as possible for those Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who are suffering during that time. What were they going through at that time? Well, we know that they always had these many, many widows to take care of. And so feeding the widows, and also perhaps all these pilgrims who would be visiting Jerusalem, they cannot just let them stay homeless without a roof over their heads, so they would perhaps invite them to their homes, fed them, and took care of them. And then, of course, there was this particular famine that hit the region, and so they were going through all kinds of needy uh, type of situations. And under this extreme poverty and also persecution that was getting stronger and stronger by the day, they were going through a very, very difficult time. And Paul says, it is our moral duty to relieve the poor within the church, even the poor who are in the churches at other regions. And perhaps Paul was trying to point out to this Gentile church that uh, you are obligated to uh, take care of the Jewish church from which all the other churches basically evolved from. It's the Jewish church which was birthed on the day of Pentecost. It was during the time of Pentecost that the preaching of Peter was instrumental in bringing something like 3,000 people to the Lord. And there were a lot of diaspora the Jewish folks at the time who accepted the gospel and who took the gospel to other regions. So they're indebted to the Jerusalem church. Maybe it is time now that we can, in a way, recompense for the grace that we have received from them. Whatever the reason may be, Paul is saying that it is our moral duty to care for others, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And I absolutely agree with this. And as all of you know, if we simply think about the world hunger or the need of humanity in general, if all humanity would come together and start giving, we can solve world hunger overnight. And this is true. It is not that we have a deficit. It's just that people are not giving for the sake of others. And so Paul is saying that this is the primary principle. It is the virtue of Christianity to give and give sacrificially at the times of need. And he's saying that this has to be done in a systematic and a volitional way. He's saying that the donation should be collected and ready even before he comes. He doesn't want to get into the situation whereby, you know, he comes to the town and he demands or he pleads with the people to squeeze the, the currency or, or the amount from them. He didn't want this last moment scrambling for collection. So he says, do this in a very systematic way. And this is the instruction he gives. He says, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. He's saying, I already talked to the Galatian churches and they are willing to do this. So it's something fair. I'm not burdening only you. I'm not obligating only you to provide for the need of the other churches in other regions. It's only fair and I think it's only consistent that you also participate in this. So he's talking about the principle of mutual sharing and even holy emulation. Or you might even say holy envy. Galatian churches are doing and you're not going to do that? 
you're much better off than the Galatian church and you claim that you have this special revelation and insight and all these spiritual gifts. God has blessed you so much. Certainly, you can meet this challenge. And then he says, on the first day of every week, and that's Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. There's a systematic way of taking up offerings. Okay. And this is not to mention tithes and general love offerings or the thanksgiving offerings that they would give on a weekly basis. He's saying, above that, you should set aside a certain amount of money every week. And then he says, in keeping with your income, giving should be proportionate to your income. So if you don't have much, then out of the litter you have, you give a portion of that. But if you have a lot, then, then you need to be generous. So much more than that. I think we under, all understand this principle of tithe, which is applied even when we're giving extra above and beyond the tithe. And he says, saving it up. This is very important that you save it up beforehand. This is a practical wisdom because Anytime we come to that point of receiving collection in a, in a gathering, you know, you're, you're always short for money. You've used up that money, so you need to save it up. Because if you save it up, then you always have money available when you bring it to a gathering on the Lord's Day. Not only is Paul advocating a systematic and a volitional way of giving, He's also talking about a way of being accountable, how to properly handle the money that is given. So he's suggesting that you delegate a group of people whom the church approves, and you hand it over to them, and they will keep a account of that money, and they will properly deliver it to the Jerusalem church. And Paul says, I would gladly accompany you with that, if you think that is wise. So what Paul is saying is he wanted to be above reproach in all matters of financial management. Money should be well collected and money should be well delivered. In other words, money needs to be well utilized, well managed through and through. And Paul is saying that this is very, very important because others will be watching us. Others will be watching the church to see how we handle the money. And then he says this money should be presented to the church in Jerusalem as a gift. And the term here is charis, grace. What is Paul saying? Everything is the grace of God. Money is not just something that I, I own and it's, it's my right and it's my insistence. No, money is something, a way by which we share the grace of God. If we have received the grace of God, then we share that grace of God to others. So money is equated with charis, grace. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he also talks about money and giving as equivalent to koinonia. Because koinonia is the term for fellowship and sharing. We don't just share our hearts, we don't just share our lives and have nice meals together. We share money sacrificially with others who are in need. And also, Paul talks about giving in terms of diakonia, which has to do with practical service, Ministry, equivalent to washing of each other's feet, we do the same thing through sharing of money. And so he, this portion 
of his writing is excellent for any kind of teaching in terms of uh, financial handling and especially the collection of offerings. And Paul has just systematically talked about this. And there's so many riches in this short talk on the finance. But uh, I don't have time to go into that in detail. But if you meditate on this text, I think God will give you plenty, plenty of uh, food for thought. And then Paul moves on to now talk about ministries in terms of his personal travel plans. But this is the way of him saying, this is how I manage time. This is how I make opportunity of those moments. And this is what Paul had to say, beginning with verse 5 all the way to verse 9. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. And so Paul is now sharing his plans to visit Corinth. And he says, I don't want to just visit just briefly to say hello. I want to spend sufficient amount of time. And he doesn't mention it, but there's all these issues that he's addressed in his letter. So he perhaps wants to reinforce that or give them feedbacks regarding the issues that they were going through. So he felt like sufficient time was necessary. He, he set up the time for the coming winter season. But where is he writing the letter? He's writing the letter in Ephesus. And his plan, his tentative plan, is that he's going to visit Macedonia. And then he's going to arrive in Corinth. And from Corinth, he'll receive the offerings and take it to Judea. And he expected the Corinthian church to actually expedite and furnish him for his journey to Judea. That they would be a part of helping him, encouraging him, and providing the fund for him to go so that he would not go to Judea empty-handed. But the reality is that Paul's plan did not quite work out as he had planned. So he had to make some revisions in his plan, at least twice we know of. We know in the next letter, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 to 16, it seems like he had planned now, changed his plan, and he said, I'm going to visit Corinth first. Then I'm going to go to Macedonia next. I'm going to come back to Corinth, and then I'm going to Judea. That was his plan, plan B. But even that didn't happen. The actual happening we know is that somehow he had to make this short and painful visit to Corinth, an emergency visit to Corinth. Because he had to reprimand them very strongly because they were questioning his apostolic authority. And so he had to make this emergency visit, discipline those who needed to be disciplined, and then he returned right back to Ephesus, and he traveled to Macedonia, and then to Judea. And therefore, Paul is wise. Anytime he's making a plan, he doesn't say, this is the will of God, because what if it doesn't happen? What would happen to the will of God? What would happen to the authority in the name of Jesus. So he is kind of hesitant. You could 
tell in this writing. He says, perhaps, uh, even, I hope, then the key word, if the Lord would permit. So he's uncertain about the future. Anything that's related to future, no matter how firm our conviction may be, we have to always say, if it is the Lord's will. Everything has to be conditioned on the will of God. And this is in line with James' teaching in chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. And this is regarding ministry. We're not talking about just everyday living situation, everyday career making plans. We're talking about ministries. Even in ministries, we should not be so adamant saying, this is it, this is definite. Because what would happen if those things don't work out? So Paul shows a lot of humility and openness regarding his schedule. Then in verses 8 to 9, he says, But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Well, here he seems to be very definitive. And what would determine our definitive way of understanding the will of God? And he has this to say, A great door for effective work has opened to me, even though there are many who would oppose me. So Paul's priority is always evangelism and nurturing the church. He's always working on evangelism. And if there's room for evangelism, he's going to prioritize that. And compared to that, he didn't want to go and just pamper the church members in uh, Corinth who are already saved in the Lord. He wanted to focus on the newly converts. And so he basically sends Timothy and his other assistants to do the works there, but he wants to focus on breaking the new ground for the kingdom of God. And he says here, there are many oppositions in Ephesus, but the city is open to effective ministry. Oftentimes we think opposition is a sign for us to leave, sign for us to close up our ministry and pull out our troop from that region. But that is not the way Paul thought. Well, opposition simply means an opportunity for Paul. And sometimes it is through opportunity, as long as there's an openness and for effective ministry, then I will be here. So what we need to do is stop complaining about the obstacles, but take advantage of the opportunities and leave the results in the hands of the Lord. And moreover, we should be animated by the zeal of our adversaries. If someone is opposing the gospel, and they have so much zeal to quench the fire of the gospel, that we must that much more have the zeal to proclaim the gospel and to stand our ground. In Ephesians 5, 15-16, Paul says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Because the days are evil, because Satan is always working to oppose the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom, we must make most of every 
opportunity. So for Paul, the use of time in his travel schedule, in his planning, the, the occasions that he would meet, all these related to time and management is as important as money. In other words, the things that we think is very earthly, very natural, is very spiritual for Paul. Money is important. Time is important. Making those occasions and, and seeing the doors of opportunity, that has to do with revelation and insight. And so he's saying that we must make opportunity to enhance the ministry and expand the kingdom of God. Now the third thing that Paul emphasizes is the people in terms of his co-workers. Along with money and the opportunity for ministry, Paul thinks that the most important factor here is actually the people, the co-workers, the team, his apostolic team. They were at the top of Paul's priority. And so Paul usually at the close of his letters, he mentions various people. And he's notorious for that, especially in Romans. You see that he has all this lengthy list of people that he commands and he, he's actually recommending to the uh, church in Rome. And, and he's constantly uplifting these individuals in his letters. So he begins in verse 10 with Timothy. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. So Timothy was being sent by Paul to Corinth to obviously correct some of these abuses, their spiritual pride, the factions, their immoralities, their lawlessness. And he was really worried for Timothy because Timothy was still a young man. He wasn't an apostle, but he was part of the apostolic company led by Apostle Paul. And you may know that Timothy, even though he was raised in a godly family, it was Paul who actually converted him, who led him in Christ. And so Timothy was Paul's son in the faith. And so Paul adopted him and took him, and he basically served as an assistant to Paul. And yet, Timothy, because he was young and inexperienced, he lacked confidence. And you see that, in, especially in First and Second Timothy, how he's exhorting Timothy to have confidence and have a sense of dignity and esteem as a servant of God. And so he lacked confidence. And he lacked respect. Other people did not give him respect. They might have given respect to Paul if he confronted them face to face. But right now, they are bad-mouthing Paul behind his back. And so, Timothy has to go into this uh, situation where people, some of them may be hostile to Paul. And him representing Paul will receive the blunt edge of their hostility. And so Paul is very much concerned because he's sending Timothy to the den of lions, so to speak, and he doesn't know what's going to happen. So this is what he clearly 
demands that they do. That Timothy should have nothing to fear from you. You should not treat him with contempt. You should definitely send him with peace because he's going to come back and he's going to give me a report of you. And if I'm not satisfied with that report and you treated him with contempt, then you have mistreated me because I'm sending him in my name, in the name of Christ and the apostolic team, I am sending him to you. So he's now speaking to uphold the Timothy before the Corinthian church. Then he moves on in verse 12 to another figure, and that is Apollos. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Now Apollos was very different from Timothy. Apollos was a very capable minister on his own right. Even before he was fully saved, even before he received the whole gospel, even before he received any kind of discipleship, he was very eloquent with the scripture. He was able to stand in the public and speak on behalf of Christ. But he was the one who was actually nurtured by Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. And they realized, wow, this is a very, very capable person with all these abilities, all these skills. And, and we should invest in him. And then he was sent to Corinth. And he made a hit. His ministry became sensational to a point that they, there was a great following. And so they say, we are followers of Apollos. And they started looking down on Paul. So Paul could have become somewhat jealous of this. But obviously here he's saying, wow, I'm going to send Apollos to you. Even though there's a faction that is uh, adhering to Apollos, I trust Apollos. Apollos is uh, someone who is trustworthy. He's not in for faction. He's not in to create his own party. I'm going to trust him. And yet Apollos also begs, please do not send me. Perhaps out of respect for Paul and out of respect for what's happening there. If I go, people will rally around me. No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be part of that party spirit. And so I am going to deny myself until they calm down. Paul, you say your say and bring them to discipline. He was not willing to go. Besides, maybe he was more interested, just like Paul, in focusing upon something that was very effective that was going on in Ephesus. So he's saying, let me invest more into this along with you. So Paul respects Apollo's decision. There's no sense of coercion to Get him to do. There's none of this kind of hierarchical, spiritual authority, manipulation here at all. Because anyone who is working with the apostolic team and the networks, Paul was very, very respectful. And uh, he recognized their dignity and honor. And so we see how Paul is working with his co-workers here. And then we see something very interesting inserted right here, which is kind of out of context, but nonetheless he says this in verses 13 to 14. Be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Who is he talking to? Well, I think first of all he's talking to the general crowd, the church in Corinth, but I think he's also talking to Timothy and Apollos. Because they really need these words. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. 
and do everything in love. I think in this short passage here, Paul pretty much says everything. And this is obviously is a military analogy. Be on your guard, that is stay awake and watch. Like the, You have to constantly be on guard as a, as a soldier. And stand firm in faith, that is keep your ranks and keep close together so that there will be no cracks within the rank so that the enemy would penetrate. Then he says, be courageous. And it is literally to act like a man. Be brave and be chivalrous. I know this uh, sounds quite chauvinistic when women hear this, but even women in the body of Christ have to be like a soldier. So maybe that's what Paul is saying. You've got to be brave and you've got to be chivalrous. You can't just get all feminine at a time like this. And then he says, be strong. That is, summon all your inner strength and take your stance. Take your stance of faith. And then at the end, he says, do everything in love. You see, he's going back to that principle of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. No matter how militant your faith may be, no matter how daring and how valiant your stance against the enemies may be, without love, it is really nothing. So always remember, even if you have firm faith, and strong, strong type of spirituality, always be meek and humble-spirited in love. Then he moves on to mention another group of people, and that is uh, the household of Stephanas. Let's begin reading from verse 15. You know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that is where Corinth is located, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. So he's talking about Stephanus' household, and it seems like he's including Fortunatus and Achaicus. And it seems like based upon what the scholars are saying, that these two names, Fortunatus and Achaicus, is very common among the uh, house slaves. So maybe they were the house slaves and they became free men that now they are simply servants in the household of Stephanus. And they were obviously sent as delegates from Corinth, maybe the whole group sent them, or maybe they were sent voluntarily. They decided, we're going to represent those who really care about Paul and the relationship. And so they were sent from Corinth to Ephesus to visit Paul. And maybe through them, they received the letter that Paul had read, and now he's replying in this very letter in 1 Corinthians. But this is what Paul has to say about Stephanus' household. He says, they were the first converts in this region, region of Corinth, Achaia. And they were very devoted servants. And they've been serving the church from the very beginning. And now they have come to me. And now they are instrumental in serving me and providing for my needs and refreshing my spirit. In a way, it seems like what he's saying is that you guys didn't really think about my needs and how I may be taken care of 
But these people who came from your company, they really took care of me. And because of them, I have a positive spirit about you. And so based upon what they had demonstrated, he's saying we should show respect and honor and we should, you should be willing to submit to them because they are the type of leaders who would make great leaders in the body of Christ. They are true servant leaders. And so this is another way he's now commending or recommending Stephanus and his family to the rest of the church in Corinth. And then finally, in verses 19 to 24, he pours out this series of greetings. And uh, when he's repeating over and over these greeting words, he seems to be trying to mend whatever was of tension and whatever was of misunderstanding, whatever strife that he was experiencing with the rest of the Corinthian church. So he obviously wants to patch that up. And for him, the final word has to do with love and reconciliation, has to do with relationship. So let's read from verses 19 to 24. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. Here, Asia, by the way, Asia. Here's Asia Minor. That's where Ephesus was. Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor. He's sending this greeting from Asia Minor, from the capital of Asia Minor, and all the other churches in Asia Minor. He's sending greetings to Achaia, and the central city there was Corinth. And he also mentions Aquila and Priscilla. They greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So here we see just a series of greetings and greetings and greetings. And he mentions Aquila and Priscilla, who are the husband-wife team, and they were known for house church movement in the early church days. To give you a little brief description of their ministry, Aquila was a Jewish Christian, and there was a persecution in Rome where they were stationed, and so they were expelled out of Rome. And so out of Rome, they moved to Corinth, and they started doing tent making, just like Apostle Paul, and that's where they met these two. And then from Corinth, they, they heard about Ephesus, that this is a prime ground for evangelism, and they settled in Ephesus. Then later on, he went, they went back to Rome, they came back to Ephesus. So you see them traveling constantly, making tents for a living, and opening up their homes for the church gathering. And so they were the prime example of this authority. They may not be apostles, they were well-renowned among the apostles for very effective ministry they did alongside of Paul. In the same city, but in the similar regions, wherever Paul would go, they would go and crisscross with one another. So he's saying 
I send you greetings, they send you greetings, all these Christians everywhere, they're sending greetings. I know all these people and they're all connected together in this apostolic team ministry and we're all sending you greetings and greetings, greetings. Then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, that's a very intimate type of act, isn't it? Intimacy, friendship, mutual respect and honor. He's saying, this is what Christian fellowship is about. Do it. And then... He signs off. And he takes the pen from his scribe, obviously, and he writes the final words. This means that Paul, in most of his letters, it wasn't his own writing. It was writings inscribed by his scribe. He pretty much, you know, worded them, and the scribe would write them down. But usually at the end, he would sign a few words to clearly show whoever is reading this letter, that he is that authority behind that letter. So he signs off and he writes his final words. And it is interesting. In this final word, there is both a curse and a blessing. Can you believe it? This is unusual that he would put a curse, a word of curse there, and then he'll wrap it up with a word of blessing. But you could tell that there was a tension constantly with this Corinthian church. And when we get to the second Corinthians, it gets even worse. Oh, Paul gets even more fired up. This is very gracious on the part of Paul here in the first Corinthians. And so he has to place this curse because there are people who are having a really non-Christian type of spirit and maybe even heretical type of spirit. And he wants to make sure that everything's purged He's not saying who. He's just saying that if anyone does not love the Lord, and that is act out of that love for the Lord, out of true commitment to the Lord, true priority in the Lord, but if they are rather insisting upon their own name, their own fame, their own club, or their own theologies, their own doctrines, then he says, let that person be cursed. Then he adds, come, Lord. That is the term maranatha, and that is the Aramaic word for come, Lord. He's asking, invoking the coming of the Lord in judgment. Of course, this term is used for his second coming, but he's saying the Lord can come at any time to bring that judgment. And he's using his apostolic authority to bring this curse upon anyone who does not truly love the Lord. Now, some people might say, wow, that's pretty mean of Paul. This is not mean of Paul. He's just saying, stating the fact. But because even John in his gospel, he talks about anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ are condemned already. They're cursed already. So Paul is just saying, if you say you love the Lord, then make sure that you truly are in line with the Lord and you're doing according to the things that will please the Lord. And then, of course, the final blessing is always very consistent with what Paul has said all throughout his other letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Always talk about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and love of God expressed through us, the Christians, that we, we continue to bond together in love. And he's saying, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you and my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. And he ends it by saying, Amen.
Amen. So when I read Paul's writings, and especially all throughout the first Corinthians, I was pretty much personally very impressed with all the teachings, all the teachings which were relevant to the Corinthian church's context. And then the final chapter on chapter 15, the theme of resurrection. And I'm sure you would agree with me, we're quite impressed with how Paul organized his thoughts regarding the theme of resurrection. And then here, even at the end, even in this closing part, he is so meticulous that he covers pretty much everything that's related to finance, related to time, related to ministry relationship, and finally, relationship in general amongst the fellow Christians. And so I think this is just a wonderful example for us ministers and especially us preachers. If we're going to ever proclaim the gospel to others and, and we are trying to jot down certain, certain contents in terms of letter or some kind of documents, we should learn from Paul how everything ought to be comprehensive. I think that he's a good role model for all of us ministers of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let us pray.